0: Professor Voisier is uh, the Chair of International Relations at the University of Reading and has been there since 2007. Um, and if I have to do these titles, because there are so many important titles, I don't know if I get them wrong, has been the Director of Research in the um, Military History Research Office of the Bundeswehr and Professor of International Strategic Studies at King's College London. Um, she's recently held the post of Visiting Professor at the Universities of uh, Paris, 4, Savonne, and 7, Saint Denis. Uh, and has been involved in lots of consultancy work for NATO, at the United Kingdom, uh, some of Japan, and the European Commission. Um, she's published widely, some of you may be looking at some of the more recent articles that she's published. Uh, her latest book uh, will be out, um, well, imminently, I mean, next month, really a few, few days away now, Rebels, Partisans and Guerrillas, uh, asymmetric Warfare Since Antiquity. Max Boot, uh, you know, is going to be knocked off the top shelf <laughs> by uh, this work um, uh, that's coming up. And um, uh, the other work, which I've done my best to ruin uh, with a chapter, is her but- edited volume uh, coming out, I think, early next year with Routledge, National Styles, fashion mark, Experiences with Insurgencies and Counterinsurgency, a joint publication with A. Framing Bar and Aitan Shamir. So, thank you much, lead.
1: Thank you very much for this very kind introduction. Um, I will proceed by just a couple of words because I um, would like to use this uh, occasion to invite any PhD students who are here to come to a little one-day seminar that we're going to be doing in Reading on the 26th of June, rounding up some of our visiting fellows on strategy-making theory and practice. And I'm saying this in particular because I was a DPhil student here at Oxford at a time when there wasn't the Changing Nature of War program. And seminars like this were very few and far between. And I got desperately lonely at times, and I found it very sad that I didn't know other people in the country uh, doing the same sort of research as me. And I remember accosting people wildly in the Public Records Office, now National Archives, just in order to network with people, etc. And I would very much welcome it if anybody felt like taking this opportunity to come to Reading on the 26th of June to meet some of our students because they're doing some things that are quite similar to uh, some of the things that you're doing here. So thank you very much for the invita- invitation to come and speak to you today. And what I'm about to present to you is a bit of a shopping list for which I apologize, there is no ground methodology, um, but there is more a whole series of points that I have gleaned from looking at this subject for quite a number of years now, and finding that there are certain patterns of moral dilemmas and, and other dilemmas, technical, ta- practical dilemmas, which seem to have recurred um, over time in many different cases and throughout history. So, um, without further ado, um, let me plunge into what I'm looking at namely, that asymmetry in warfare has a whole series of different dimensions, one of which is most classically, obviously, there's numeric asymmetry, technical asymmetry, the asymmetry of supplies. Let me hold there for a second. Um, Asymmetry of supplies, meaning that one side is likely to find it more difficult than the other to get hold of not only arms but possibly also food because the whole asymmetry as I'll explain in a moment um, involves normally a group that is uh, not a state actor acting against a state that in some way has the opportunity to cut the other side off from these supplies. There are are important consequences flowing from this and the legal asymmetry which I've already almost touched on when saying that there is this asymmetry in one side being a state actor, the other likely not to be a state actor Many cases will come to mind where you say that it's not that simple, we're not just talking about state actors, non-state actors, but let's just stick to these few points for the moment. So let me uh, emphasize um, this word at the bottom. Um, The insurgents are very often, and traditionally, um, referred to banditti. Now let me just dwell on the word. The word, uh, if anybody Italians in the room or anybody who's interested in the Renaissance, tended to not to have a negative connotation. Um, When you had, in the 16th century, the famous um, special forces, if you might call them, the band, uh, there was a a, a wonderful Medici uh, um, aristocrat uh, known as Giovanni delle Bande Nere, who had his little um, group of special forces, and in that context, the word bande uh, was still a neutral term referring to this special unit um, you may or may not know this uh, character from a wonderful film I recommend to you, which is called Medici Warrior. Um, the point being that these special units only transmogrify into partisan units without an ideological component and then partisan u- units with an ideological component around the time of the Napoleonic Wars. And even when this painting was done, the word banditti in the Italian context was still neutral. Uh, um, we find, for example, Manzini uses it in a neutral terms. He talks about my banditti, my my partisans. Um, but it then, of course, gets this negative connotation, which is then, of course, exploited by counterinsurgency forces to um, indicate that they're, in fact, criminal actors, that they are bandits, that they act in much the same way as bandits do. And if you look at the tremendous and wonderful work that Charles Esdale has done on the uh, Spanish-Peninsular War and the um, guerrilla uh, in Spain against Napoleon, you will find that he shows lots and lots of evidence of overlap between practices and also social provenance of the guerrilleros who had very often been banditti and actually after the um, end of the guerrilla, um, sometimes turned back into, uh, into, uh, into bandits. And that this was one of the great preoccupations then of the Spanish government to try to regularize them because they were not only people who were difficult to control in a disciplinary military sense, but also difficult to control from the point of view that they had criminal networks. So a symmetry of supplies, they have the need to to draw on criminal networks for their surprise. They're involved with criminal networks. And therefore, um, very often you have, in the context of an insurgency, an element of warlordism, uh, and and incentives to keep the conflict going. And this was something that I came up against, particularly when I was in NATO, and the Yugoslav wars were still going on, and the Kosovo war was starting, Bosnia-Herzegovina, somehow didn't quite die down, because there were so many groups of, in some form, fighters, to use a slightly neutral term, who had become very strongly involved with the, the criminal side of this whole uh, enterprise. And the, um, their own actions, uh, in a way, they had, uh, they, they began to, they'd had uh, many of them had uh, vested interests in keeping the conflict going and in prolonging um, a state of affairs in which they could make money uh, in a way that had nothing to do with the original ideological uh, aims of the insurgency then at least let me remind you that the Italian mafias were created out of the, were children of the Risorgimento and that they were, their lifespan was prolonged or even reinvigorated by the way in which in the end, at the end of the Second World War and immediately after the Second World War, the Americans used them in order to counteract both fascists and uh, communists in Italy and bring them onto their side. And the same is true for mafia rings in southern France, which were practically created by the Allies in at the end of the second, towards the end of the Second World War. Because these were criminal groups that were um, um, uh, fed uh, money and and arms by the Allies, because they were, at the same time, against Vichy and against the Germans. So there is this very strong uh, overlay. And incidentally, I have a student working on this. So if anybody wants to meet her, that will be come to Reading on the 26th of June. Legal asymmetry. Um, Insurgency as the worst crime in Les Majesties goes back clearly uh, to the Middle Ages and even before to to Roman times, um, which is why there has been so much concern to try to regulate um, uh, both sides, or regulate the actions there, uh, with a rather feeble attempt made in the Hague Convention to give them some protection by recognizing them in some way as um, protected by the laws of war and um, by giving them or by trying to force upon them two um, rules which they couldn't possibly meet in most contexts and those are the ones I write out in red namely that they would get protection as militias and volunteer corps if they had a fixed distinctive emblem recognisable at a distance and if they carried arms openly and any of you who've sat at the feet of Adam Roberts um, will know that these are the, the great problems that you have that at the very moment you are distinguishable, it's very difficult for you to be a, um, an irregular fighter and it's very difficult for you to work on the resistance. So the whole point is that this is, these are the two um, things that they can't do because they, w- they won't survive if they do that. Now, this was addressed to some extent in the Geneva Protocol of 1977. Again, I'll spare you the text in its entirety, but I'm trying to guide you to the um, highlighted parts. Um, again, there is emphasis on the uh, need to distinguish themselves, uh, but at least there is this attempt to make this more practicable by saying that they have to carry arms openly and distinguishable during each military engagement and during such time as they are visible to the adversary while engaged in military deployment preceding the launching of an attack. Again, it's not fully practical because the whole point about uh, attacks of your resistance fighters is that you're trying to place them uh, secretly and you're trying to place them. Have I just switched no, something on do. there? Ah, thank you very much. So uh, still the whole um, protection scheme, if you like, relies on this idea of distinguishable Uh, At the same time, um, you all have resonating in your minds surely this idea that the guerrilla gets by, or the guerrillero gets by, by being the fish in water that blends into the the landscape, that blends into the rest of the population, disappears, otherwise they would be far too easy to catch for the other side that is, in many other ways, uh, privileged. Now... Let me just give you a brief glance on the legal situation or the thinking about the right to rise up against the tyrant. And I'll go back to the Maccabees, um, not simply because I like going back a long time, but because this particular issue has been invoked by Christians throughout centuries and centuries um, for the simple reason that this is a text that seems to condone rising up against the head of state, the legitimate ruler. Uh, who by the very nature of the fact that he is suppressing religion, or a particular practice of religion, becomes illegitimate. This part of the Bible, very fascinatingly, was omitted by our good Martin Luther in his translation of the Bible into German, because it was far too contentious, wasn't it? So this is not part of the Lutheran uh, canon of the Bible, but is referred to by all sorts of other, both Catholics and Protestants through the ages, As the legitimising text to rise up against English Civil War, Charles I, um, French wars of religion against uh, the last Valois rulers, etc. And it becomes the precedent that is always invoked. Then um, you have an early notion creeping in. Uh, My friend and colleague Alan Cromarty tells me that this has probably never been absent, but from the 13th century onwards, you get an expressed notion. It's not just Locke, but from the 13th century onwards, you get a notion that a ruler owes his place not only to God, but also to the people. Some, and the the word election is not mentioned, but somehow there is this implication that the people have chosen him. And of course there were earlier forms of electing rulers. Therefore, there is actually a long time before Locke a notion of somebody being chosen by a group of people who therefore in theory have the right to take that choice away, away again from that person or that position away again from that person if the person is a tyrant. In the 16th century, as I've already mentioned, you have it coming up in a very big way in the French religious wars, which is, in many respects, the the laboratory of new thinking about statehood. And you have it in Grotius, who explicitly says that, that in certain circumstances, people should have the right to rise up against the ruler. Then he has a whole paragraph which he says in those circumstances you can't. Um, but it's clearly something that is troubling minds from the 16th century onwards and is becoming very articulated. And if you look at the 18th century um, sorry, 18th century humanism, if you look at the, the, the of Diderot d'Alembert, they have a whole article in which it is spelt out that this is a just cause for war to rise up against a, um, an, an unjust ruler. And the interesting thing in all of this is that it spells out also the droit d'ingérence. This is not a 20th century invention. The right to intervene goes back to these texts, and particularly to the 16th century ones, where the prince is actually obliged to go and help an oppressed populace of another prince if that prince is suppressing the righteous religion or the legitimate religion. So quite interesting that this is, again, something with quite a long uh, precedent. Um, Interestingly, the idea that you have only got, you can only have peace if you have good governance is one that is linked to this and also goes back uh, far further than some 21st century I.R. theorists might think. We find it in Machiavelli um, interestingly, because again, everybody who cancels would think of Machiavelli as somebody who uh, will always preach uh, what is convenient for the ruler, but classically this is one of the areas where he packages his teaching in forms of, it would be into your interest to do this because it would be, it probably is going to work, and therefore it'll be your interest, when in fact what he's selling is what is actually morally preferable. And this is not the only uh, area where he does this, He has anything he writes, uh, or he wrote about uh, insurgency and counterinsurgency, revolves around how it is only in your interest and wise to diffuse any tensions created within the state through good governance, i.e., do uh, apply preventive medicine rather than just cruel suppression once you get to it. And if you do have to to suppress an insurgency, um, you can't do it through by by killing everybody. You have to practice mildness. An English um, cleric called Matthew Sutcliffe, who was a, was a product of the other place, and was pretty close to the Earl of Essex, who was, as you know, one of Elizabeth I's uh, military leaders, uh, also articulated ideas on this subject. Very interestingly inspired himself by Spanish thinkers, although he really knew the Spanish, and the whole uh, tenor of his writing is to go to war against Spain. Um, but in that he actually articulates that you cannot possibly pacify a hostile population unless you could do it by good governance. Taking his, in a way, his adversary would have been but done Bernardino Mendoza at the same time, late 16th century. Spaniard uh, does exactly the same thing. And he, um, Mendoza was a fascinating character. I'll stop myself from telling you all about him because there's so much. But he was, uh, along with the Duke of Alba, in the Spanish <coughs> attempt to quell the Dutch wars of independence, which, as you may recall, took 80 years and in the end proved unsuccessful. And Alba was very notorious for the cruelty that he practiced and the the, the atrocities uh, that were committed under him. Uh, And Mendoza um, was strongly against this and at the end of his life articulated a whole um, body of, of, of thoughts on this matter in which he said that you cannot practice counterinsurgency by cruelty. It will work against you. Then. Another one of my great heroes, an uh, early 18th century person who was a theoretician and a practitioner. He was a practitioner both as a general and as a diplomat. He sat in peace t- conferences and also was an administrator of Spanish overseas territories and was heavily involved in the Spanish of succession. Uh, Santa Cruz de Matenado uh, spelt out in great detail material about how to pacify an insurgency, how to prevent it, and if it has broken out, how to pacify it. And it reads as though it was the blueprint for Petraeus' Field Manual. It really does. Uh, he's afterwards completely forgotten because he writes in such a cumbersome way. Uh, in the 19th century, still referred to. In the 20th century, nobody talks about him. Um, but the pole Petraeus approach seems to have been a complete reinvention of the wheel that you can find in so many respects in, in Santa Cruz de Mathenada, which is all about um, uh, taking the, uh, isolating the leaders, making the winning hearts and minds, bring the population over to your side, uh, ensuring that they live in a flourishing economy, restructure the economy, give them a um, vested interest in the new situation, um, build, uh, uh, further their commerce, uh, build universities for them, great belief in 18th century belief in education, and it's, it's, it's absolutely uh, wonderful. And you get it again in Diderot uh, in Alambert, where, again, a pacification of um, insurgency can only possibly be done by uh, practicing what today would be called good governance. Now, there's the other side, which also goes back to the 16th century. This, um, there was a um, Frenchman called, probably, locke and Sayans. I think he, we think he changed his name because he was persecuted. Um, and he was a rabbit huguenot. Uh, uh, who has long parts about how you should try to be kind to your adversaries unless they really fail to see the, or their, uh, the errors of their ways, in which case you should repress them ruthlessly. Um, you have the practitioners of whom I've already mentioned, Alba in the 16th century, uh, in the uh, attempt to repress the, the, the Dutch wars. Uh, Kellerman, um, a nasty Alsatian who uh, did really pretty dreadful things in the Vendée uprising against the French Revolution. And you had, uh, very importantly, and somebody who articulated all this, um, a Frenchman Bujot. These are, um, it's probably difficult to see from the back, but these are rests of bones that were discovered in um, some of the caves in Algeria, in which, um, in the 1830s and early 40s, uh, Bujot had used... uh, basically a smoke tactic, the enfumade, by putting in smoke, a bit like what the Americans did in Afghanistan in 2001, um, to um, smoke them out and basically kill, suffocate the, the insurgents in these caves. And the, insurg- in the insurgents, in this case, Tended to be men, women and children, and those were the particular things that he became famous for. And Bougeot articulated his whole approach. He'd had he'd learnt his approach in Saragossa. The letters he wrote from the Spanish Peninsular War to his sister make very interesting reading because it is one-to-one an application of that <coughs> to a very large extent that he then practiced in Algeria. And it was basically these all brutes, and we go against them in the brutal way, and that's what they deserve. And it should not go unmentioned that our good friend Colwell was greatly influenced by Bujon and had a lot of admiration for him. Um, Colwell, in other places, says that he prefers the, more, um, the softer approach by, uh, that was practiced by Kellermann's pr- uh, pr- um, predecessor, Hoche, in the Vendée. Um, but Colwell also said that outside Europe you couldn't practice the soft approach, and the Bujon approach was clearly the one that you should admire and emulate. Now, let us um, look at insurgencies a little bit more. And I, um, one of the things that tends to be um, that is in a lot of t- early 20th century writing or 20th century writers sort of until the end of the Cold War, um, is that they are thought of we're talking about Martina of Dalula living in etc. Uh, very much in the light of an east-west confrontation, communism versus the reactionary west or something like that. Mm -hmm. While, in fact, an awful lot of uh, insurgencies always had a religious motive, and the problem is then that they were recast somehow, depending on what your viewpoint was, as progressive, if you were in favor of Protestantism and thought that was a, a cultural step forward, or reactionary if it was the people in the Vendée who were against uh, um, the atheism of the French Revolution and now, of course, Islamists. And that's a a thing that has, in a way, rarely been at the center of uh, attention. Much more attention has been given in literature on insurgency to the uh, religious aspect of insurgencies, where, again, I would question this uh, division that is very often undertaken to progressive and reactionary because I think what they all have in common, or what the very large number of them have in common, is that they're anti-colonial, nationalist, and xenophobic, that there is some sort of element of disliking what's outside. And just to give you the example of this, again, um, the Vendilles, They they, they were for above all um, the protection of Catholicism against the French Revolution, which was trying to get the priests to somehow uh, commit their loyalty to. But if you look at the guys who were doing this, (laughs) they're pretty dashing, and they're pretty much as uh, this one's pretty handsome. uh, But the point is that they're pretty much in the same spirit as the French revolutionaries, but in somehow you know with a different. Um, centre of their loyalty etc but the way they fought, the way they they used propaganda uh, and just about everything else was very much in line with what the French Revolution was doing now that leaves us I'm trying to lead you up to the question but um, one of the interesting things about insurgencies is that we never quite know in advance on which side we are it seemed there was this big pattern of anti colonial uprisings, and it sort of seemed to stand to reason that the colonial empires would be opposed to anti colonial uprisings. But of course, they um, were in the middle of it and practiced it themselves and encouraged it themselves, as you will see from um, this gentleman's role uh, in the uh, First World War. So the whole point is that we, there isn't a nice clear cut division into, oh, we are against insurgencies because we're on the side of the state power, which surely must be right, or we are for it. And with what I've shown you before, I was trying to demonstrate that, in fact, there is a big tradition that makes both sides, or can make both sides legitimate if it puts itself in a particular tradition. So on whose side are we in anti-colonial uprisings? It has been on both. Um, In the interesting context, of course, of the Second World War, the United Kingdom and France, depending on which French people you're identifying with at this particular point, were on the side of the resistance and the resistance fighters throughout Europe, which led to very interesting points in uh, the context, for example, of Poland or Ukraine, where you had at times people um, on the side of the Nazis fighting against the Soviet Union, etc., and the allegiance there. And there is a a very interesting book that I found, an eye-opener, written in the 50s by CNN Blair. And there was talk about re-editing it. Hasn't been done. But the interesting point about this study is that it was commissioned by the MOD. And it comes very much in the context of the late 1940s, early 1950s politics of Western countries, and particularly the United States, Britain, and um, uh, NATO in general, as you will see from this project, um, that they were prepared to engender uprisings, support uprisings, not engender, support uprisings by anybody who was prepared to rise up, if they were going to do so, against the Soviet Union and communist regimes all uh, all over Eastern Europe. That is what was proclaimed, that is what was preached practically or implied all the time on Radio Free Europe and all the other uh, emissions. And regular liberty, but when of course it came to the real crunch and uprisings, spontaneous uprisings occurred, 1953, 1956, the Western powers stood by. The point is, however, that this book shows, the CNN Blair book on on, uh, uprisings and insurgencies and small wars, um, shows that Western powers were uh, consciously training their own military or trying to educate their own military about patterns of insurgencies. And the book is fascinating in that it shows cases from both um, camps, if you like. It shows how um, insurgent movements against the Germans operated during the Second World War, but it then went on also to dis- discuss with the same fairness how the Greeks were rising up against the Greek government, the Greek communists against the Greek government, the Greek government being, su- being supported by the British and the Americans in the late 1940s. So it looked at the subject very much, and, and the, 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 the introduction, or the conclusion of one of those, actually says, um, and I'm writing this so as to educate you on how to do it. This is how to do an an, an insurgency. So this book was very much written uh, with the idea in mind that uh, the Third World War might start with insurgencies breaking out spontaneously in Eastern Europe, and we the Western powers, NATO powers, would of course be supporting them. And you may recall that Gladio was all about preparing NATO territory for... an insurgency if the Soviets would actually occupy, win, occupy the territory and then you have to uh, practice counterinsurgency. So that's an interesting period of um, thinking about insurgency and counterinsurgency in Western powers. so uh, then comes the Cold War and it's only after that, in the 60s and 70s, that there is a sort of Um, reflex on the part of NATO powers to take sides against insurgencies, obviously with the experience of the British in in Malaya, the the French in in China and Algeria, etc. And all of a sudden, uh, writers tend to identify with the governments rather than the insurgents in this context, or rather Western writers. Then you have the Yugoslav Wars, which um, (laughs) took a long time to make sense to Western observers, and as you will recall, it uh, took a long time for Western countries to take sides anyway. And then you have um, the context of, uh, in the context of Iraq and Afghanistan, the confrontation with the insurgencies where the Western powers are helping the governments they've put in place against the insurgents. And then you have a a mix of different situations with Libya, Syria, and Mali. Um, one where uh, the uh, NATO countries have taken the side of the insurgents, Mali, where they've taken the sides of the counterinsurgents, and Syria, where there's no interaction. So there is no pattern, um, and I am, or on, of, on whose side we are, uh, which I'm underlining because I've talked to um, audiences in countries where people automatically assume that insurgents are good things and counterinsurgents are bad things, and that this is defined from the beginning and that you have to side with insurgents. Um, the fact is that Western governments have difficulties in taking sides and deciding on whose side they are. Now, um, this is the bit that I'll, uh, I'll spare you because I think we're running slightly out of time. Um, but if you will, if you ever have time to go onto YouTube and to watch a little bit about the Zen master in Afghanistan in Charlie Wilson's War, which is one of my favorite books and also films, Um, It's the wonderful little story about uh, how um, whether it is a good thing or not uh, that you're supporting somebody can change over time. It's a little story, I'll tell it to you rather than to play around with the technology now. Um, It's a story about a little boy who's given a horse and everybody in the Willow Village says how wonderful and the Zen master says let's see. boy falls from the horse, breaks his leg and he'll always have a limp. and everybody says poor, poor, poor boy, Zen master says let's see. War comes to the village. All the young boys are recruited. This boy is not recruited because he can't go to war. Everybody says, what an enviable situation. Zen master says, "What? let's see. So um, this is the the wonderful story, and then therefore about Western uh, arming of the Taliban, and then finding themselves at the receiving end of all this. Now, there are clearly two um, approaches that we have now, and that create a moral dilemma for us. Um, on uh, insurgencies and counterinsurgency, which is the one approach on which international, on the one hand, on which international law has been built since the 19th century, namely that of state sovereignty and the non-interference of a state's internal affairs, very much against what that tradition that I named, that I uh, spread out for you um, on interference in case of a a tyrannical regime uh, preached. And you have, on the other side, the responsibility to protect I've already hinted heavily that there are precedents in this that go back, in fact, to the Crusades, but definitely to the 16th century. Um, the, this idea that princes have the moral obligation to go and help a population against a tyrant that is an international law ever since. And you had the practice of the 19th century in which you had liberal interventionism, and you had, uh, on behalf of Christian subjects in the Ottoman Empire, and you had that element and that practice during the uh, World Wars. So, again, something with a long tradition and a long story beforehand. There is this tension in the international law, therefore, the idea that you have to respect sovereignty and uphold it because it's in your own state's interest, and on the other hand, have this uh, droit d'ingérence. Um What are the factors that played into that in a very big way? I think um, uh, it's interesting that Kouchner himself. Um, uh, as you know, he was in Middecin Sans Frontier and was very heavily involved in this and his own account in which he gives of how the Middecin sans frontier and the droit de comes into being, um, he goes on quite a lot about the um, the act marquis, the thing that people did not do, i.e. intervene in Hitler's Germany. Um, and I think that is something that is an undercurrent in, in a lot of people's thinking, um, and I think it, and I think rightly so. Um, his own account of it is that the thing really got started with the French the, the French doctors in Biafra, and then the Médecins Sans Frontières, and then uh, the term is, it's, itself seems to have been coined by Jean-François Ravel in 1979. That's in a way the early uh, period of it. And then you have further act there are further things that we failed to do, and that have given us a feeling of guilt um, of uh, Yugoslavia itself. The, the famous Lepenitsa case is, is, the, is emblematic for that, and of course uh, the intervention in Rwanda that didn't take place. So you get this shift towards a new um, uh, emphasis within the interpretation of the UN Charter um, with the responsibility to protect being coined as a term by Gareth Evans, Mohamed Sanun, and Michael Ignatieff. Let us go as Uh, step back and look at causes of uprising and how this now represents a dilemma in view of what I have outlined as the tension in international law between sovereignism and the responsibility to protect. If you look at the causes of uprisings, um, they seem to be very much something that you can see uh, over centuries as patterns that repeat themselves. Um, How do you approach those, and how do you intervene with them in them? Because there's clearly in all of those, whether they're religious or ideological, whether they're a question of poor governance, unequal distribution of resources, injustice, the suppression of minority rights, failing or failed states, none of these can be addressed if you strictly uphold sovereigntyism and this idea that you can't intervene in another state. To dwell uh, briefly on a dilemma presented by um, the tendency since 45, not to declare war, so as not to get into the danger of going uh, having uh, war crimes trials afterwards. Um, these have certain advantages. Um, the advantage is that you don't get the prosecution of war crimes, but, uh, and you, that you uh, deny combatant standing status to insurgents, but they have the great disadvantages, that your actions are outside legal frameworks, uh, you have no legal protection really for either side, and you can't c- uh, condone or you can't exclude Uh, killing and collateral damage by military necessity, as you would under the the laws of war. Now, there's another problem, which is the limitation of our means. And you will be surprised to find here a little um, illustration, illumination, of the uh, Battle of Bouvines. But it is a handy little uh, thing to compare, because on the French side of the uh, Battle of Bouvines, you had 7,000 people. On the combined English and Empire side, 9,000. Um, In ISAF, uh, in November uh, 2009, you had 4,000 Frenchmen. In 2012, 9,500 British forces. And the German forces in February 2013 were uh, 4,400, I think, something like that, 4,000. So the interesting point is that we have this, um, not only a legal dilemma, but we also have limitations of our means which actually take us to having a deployable force or a useful force at any one particular point uh, that is comparable to the restraints that there were in the Middle Ages. There are many more problems that um, flow from current restraints on what Western powers can do. We have the famous coalitions of the willing with add-ons Um, with divergent rules of engagement, divergent definitions of the task and preferences, and I'd like to recommend an article to you um, that I found in a publication of this uh, International Committee of Military Historians um, that was produced on a wonderful volume, actually, that's the best volume they ever produced as far as I'm I'm concerned, on uh, insurgency and counterinsurgency where uh, this um, <coughs> Danish uh, officer, <coughs> speaking from first-hand experience, um, was apparently given the permission to say what he and his colleagues were feeling about this. And it has a wonderful insight into the problems of working with allies who have divergent definitions of the task, divergent preferences, divergent rules of entanglement, and where you have to rely on part partners less. So that's a marvelous article to look at this. Um, the uh, problems there obviously being the absence of any centralized NATO um, planning for strategy in the first place, but also um, as long as I've been following this, and I must say that I've been taking, I have been took my ball off this uh, at the end of last year, but as far as I know there still isn't a common NATO manual on, or, uh, or field handbook or anything like that on insurgency because the Germans have been blocking it. And it goes to the point where I had great fun. Uh, There is, the Germans couldn't produce one, but there is an English translation of an unofficial German one on the website, while the Germans officially denied to me that they had one. So, yeah, okay. Um, Getting back to the problems of the, the causes of insurgencies, um, there is another big moral dilemma underlying this, which is that constantly when you're trying to address the causes, causes of insurgencies, just to get back to um, uh, of these, um, all of these involve the intervention in some way in that society itself, and the, uh, the effect of it is that you're going to be accused of, being, of practicing cultural imperialism that you are trying to export Western democratic stu- structures, Western legal structures, Western economic structures, et cetera, and the, um, uh, which is part of the state building. And of course, the accusation will be that none of these actually um, can't be, uh, none of these could be applied to cultures which are very different. And um, all these things will constantly be called into question. In question and, and I find it very interesting how there is, seems to be a predominant uh, tendency in the debates in Western society that seems to say, um, oh, human rights don't really apply to all human beings in the same way because they should be culturally specific. And obviously all these things that we think are the of Western uh, culture and that have been in some ways accepted into UN documents here and there um, are something that we can just throw overboard because we don't really believe in them. So there's a huge problem in applying them because you're constantly being criticized for not doing something that is um, appropriate for the area. Then the next big moral dilemma um, is the um, question of the innocent combatants. Let me just um, re-emphasize where the word comes from. The is to harm. And the innocent non-combatants should, of course, be the people who can't do you any harm. And this is a line that goes through international law, which says you mustn't kill and you mustn't harm people who can't do you any harm. But the question is, That there are a a lot of um, people around who can do you harm, although they should be really protected from other points of view. And one of the um, recent things I found that in the the Israeli debate about their operations, recent operations in Gaza, was that they tried very hard to say we're not uh, that the large number of casualties that was inflicted on people who were not technically um, combatants. Included a lot of people who were not innocent non combatants. They were doing harm to the Israeli state and therefore could not be seen as innocent non combatants. And therefore, the figures they gave for collateral damage were much lower than those put forward by the Palestinians. Um, this whole issue, I could go on for one hour and I won't. Uh, just to, to point out that this is an, an enduring problem that we have when we're looking at all those who are in some way supporting the war effort of others, and we're looking at democracies where people vote governments into power that will do things like go to war, and to what extent they can therefore be seen as being totally divided from the war effort itself, an issue that has been troubling us for the entire 20th century and even before. the Problem with that is then how to isolate the leaders from the rest, who is the rest, and to what extent are they truly neutral. Um, uh, You have varying degrees, obviously, of population involvement depending on the the different insurgency, Um, but uh, there is that problem of draining the swamp and killing all the pond life, which is going to be the continuing dilemma that faces that particular issue. Um, We're dealing with divergent time frames. One of the dilemmas that arises in insurgencies and counterinsurgency is the question of whether it is the Uh, predominant concern of the powers that are involved in the operation one side or the other uh, to sort the crisis out, out. Um, and is it going to be simply before political imperatives at home dictate certain things, or is it going to be properly sorting out the crisis in that area for good, which tends to mean addressing the major root causes and tends to mean producing mental shifts among all the players in the conflict, tends to mean a long-term military engagement. Looking at how organizations work, you have very different time frames there and time concerns there. Um, you have people, particularly in the postings where they have the decision-making capacity, thinking normally in terms of two years, um, up to five uh, or uh, four or five, depending on elections. Um, while on the whole, I think people would say that the time to needed to affect cultural change, and we've seen that in um, Afga- uh, Iraq and also Afghanistan, tends to be 15 plus years, generation change, etc. So this is something that where we tend to find that the two are heavily out of sync. You have the famous story that uh, occupation fatigue works against uh, any counterinsurgents. You have the time on the side of the insurgents, and you find that there is an, um, fat fatigue among the, not only the local population, but also the populations at home. And you have the decreasing morale among one's own forces to contend with when there's no feeling that uh, any military ends can be uh, uh, met very easily. And the. A overall uh, prediction that a number of people have come up with that there's going to be less and less willingness on the part of Western powers to intervene. Syria tends to be cited as the example of that. There was a widespread reluctance to getting engaged in coin in the early in the in the 1990s and the early 2000s. Um, which was seen was drawn from particular experiences of particular countries, but interestingly enough, I found documents going or texts going back even to the um, very early nineteenth century where people commented on the fact that this was not popular, not the popular form of war with people military people who wanted to make a big career. Um, what we do see now is an abandonment of a one- size fits all approach to one's own military. There is more and more emphasis on the idea that you have to have military, Uh, that is able to do things different from protecting the Fulda gap. Um, All second and third-rate powers have the enormous problem that they can't really afford that sort of specialization, that really they haven't got enough personnel to train for completely different missions, um, with the overall effect that there tends to be concern now whether people are still uh, competent to wage regular war and if everything is now too ex- extremely gone over to the um, concentration on uh, counterinsurgency and the uh, irregular war um, there's the old story of how to hand over to the locals and how what you, you really want to do is you want to uh, force the uh, give the subject back to the, the local forces um, which builds on a very long tradition of employing locals to fight locals which of course goes back to in fact Roman times but uh, which has a very live tradition still with the French foreign legion and uh, the British use of indigenous forces. Um, You will recall that T. Lawrence is famous for having said that it's much better that the locals take a long time and make many mistakes while doing something, rather than giving it to them on the platter. But at least they have the ownership, and then they feel that it's their achievement. Um, The problem that you immediately have from this is that the regime that you've put into power um, will be very desperate to avoid being seen as a puppet regime, of which it, of course, will be accused and therefore will probably do things just to spite you, just in order to be seen as independent, um, when you would be advising them to do things differently, and I think that's a, an, something that's been observed many times in Afghanistan in particular. Uh, you have the another moral dilemma which comes into this, which is that in tribal societies, or societies where there is a tribal element, or there is some element of minorities, ethnic minorities, time and again, um, groups have been mobilized against the insurgents who had an interest in cooperating with the counterinsurgent power because they were a minority, because they were different. And that tended to lead to them being sacrificed. When the whole counterinsurgency effort collapsed, you had that with the French Hatties in Algeria, you had the Montagnan in near China and Vietnam. Um, the Kurds were sacrificed a number of times at the moment. They seem to be striving. I hope for their sake that going to, that's going to continue, because the next thing that might well happen is that they will be um, sacrificed again, as they had been before, to some greater political scheme. More moral dilemmas. Who is the opposition? Who are the leaders? Is there a central leadership? Um, Uh, Do we actually know enough about them and how they're going to uh, develop? Uh, by cooperating with traditional leaders, are we actually reinforcing the authoritarian social structures? This to me was the Achilles heel, to some extent, of the uh, Petraeus Field Manual, where you will recall that the anthropological element was very strongly stressing that you should cooperate with local powers in order to um, further your own interests, but therefore you're reinforcing them. And of course, these people might not be the sort of enlightened Democrats that you were hoping for in the end. And you're actually building more barriers uh, for democratization. Are you driving out the devil with Beelzebub? You know, are you both bolstering, as I mentioned before, criminal networks, the mafias and the Second World War? Are you bolstering a vendetta culture? Um, are you protecting the people from whom tomorrow's insurgents are going to spring? And to what extent is a social engineering and cultural transformation pros- uh, process possible, particularly as we are operating in an environment which is increasingly um, Emphasizing that you have to have cultural heterogeneity and that you should not be forcing your culture down somebody else's throat. So, what is the right moral stance to, J, uh, to take? And I'll go back. I'll draw here on um, again very old tradition. Um, the one of the just four conditions going back to St Augustine at least is that, and in fact Cicero, um, is that it is immoral to fight if there's no chance of success. How can you predict? how much such a success you're going to be has always been the logical problem or the philosophical problem with that stance. How can you actually evaluate um, how things are going to pan out? Uh, It it goes back to Cicero to say it is also immoral to stand by and allow atrocities to happen. Um, As Western powers, or as whatever enlightened people who stand by the UN uh, Charter and by the UN Declaration of Human Rights, we are caught in the horns of this particular dilemma. As an epilogue, we can just stress that, of course, there's been huge debates uh, in West Point and elsewhere about a new coin strategy and where it should take us and where uh, the portrayed strategy has gone wrong. Uh, the neorealist question, if you like, that's being asked by Americans in particular is, you know, we've done all this, what's in it for us? Why have we bothered to do this? To which, for neorealists, the question is not simply for the better, greater good of humanity, um, but is, um, why, how does, has the United States benefited from it? And I'd like to um, draw your attention to the Giantile um on this, the strategy of tactics, which uh, is, is all the frustration of the Petraeus handbook uh, brought together. And some of you might want to Google the Colonel Tunnel um, text from 2010 where a, a practitioner in the field uh, brought out all the, um, his concerns about how the Petraeus handbook's work wasn't operating well and it wasn't, wasn't, um, it wasn't applicable to the situation in, Iraq, in Afghanistan. Is liberal interventionism on the wane, therefore? Um, And we have this, in particular, of course, question in Europe, where the whole idea of intervention seems, in quite a number of cultures, very alien. And you have very much still this fortress Europe thinking that is going on in many ministries, which is uh, um, outside Europe, let there be a deluge, we don't really care. Uh, The only two states which seem to be willing in Europe, uh, systematically, to take a different position, being Britain and France, but even there, you see that it's very much tied up with particular interests as well. So, thank you very much for your attention.